0: Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and change makers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I'm Dr. Romy Redding, and I'm Dr. Billy Pivnik, and welcome to Couched. Today, we are delighted to welcome two exciting guests, Dr. Ken Corbett and Susan Choi. Dr. Corbett, a psychologist and psychoanalyst, is also a professor at the New York University Postdoctoral Program in Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy, and he is the author of two what I consider to be very important books, Boyhoods, Rethinking Masculinities, and A Murder Over a
1: Girl, Gender Justice Junior High. Susan Choi is an award-winning author of fiction she was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the Penn Faulkner Award in Fiction. Her most recent novel, Trust Exercise, received the National Book Award for 2019. Currently, she teaches fiction writing at Yale.
0: Before we dive into today's conversation, we're going to take a moment to briefly orient you to the two books that we will, in part, be referencing in our discussion.
1: The first is Susan Choi's Trust Exercise a story set in an elite performing arts high school in the early 80s that deals with teens' struggles to discover who they are in the world and to find a sense of belonging. Choi's inventive narrative structure creates believable surprises that make it clear how much the young characters had yet to understand about their earlier experiences.
0: The second is Dr. Ken Corbett's A Murder Over a Girl, Justice Gender Junior High. This story compassionately details the murder of Letitia King, an African-American transgender teen, by Brandon McInerney, an adolescent shaped by trauma, violence, and white supremacist ideology. Dr. Corbett takes us into the courtroom, vividly portraying the traumatic mix of race, gender, and class struggle that pervade the lives of these teens, their families, and their community.
1: We hope that this episode will inspire you to read both books if you haven't already. Now, on to the episode.
0: Can you start us off by orienting our listeners to the themes in your work?
2: I have a longstanding interest in human development, uh, child development, maybe in particular, and I have a corresponding interest in models of mind and how we think about human development and how those theories of mind interact with or don't interact with the ways in which we contemplate social phenomenon.
0: Great.
2: As a
3: fiction writer, I think that my abiding interests tend to emerge retrospectively mm-hmm. or sometimes in conversations like this, whereas when I'm writing, I'm, I'm usually writing about characters and situations without thinking about themes. But I think having accumulated five novels to look back at, it's clear to me at least that I tend to be drawn to, first, the stories of outsiders, whether they're outsiders. Well, for my first novel is about an immigrant, so that's a type of outsider. Um, my second novel is about a young woman of Asian descent who's involved in the radical movement, and she's the only non-white young activist in her milieu. So that idea of outsiders interests me, and um, I think also, you know, I'm really interested in forms of zealotry Mm. (laughs) or or Mm. intense allegiance Mm. to ideas or to dreams or fantasies. My third book is a is in part about a Unabomber-like figure who chooses to act on his ideological beliefs through through violence. And and my most recent book, Trust Exercise, is about these young people who are intensely enthralled by the idea of becoming performing artists and sort of put everything aside but that ambition. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I, I think I share something with you in terms of an interest in the outsider. And I've often written about or tried to write about in particular in the realm of gender and masculinity, those men and boys who are seen to be outside of the category. And I've argued that the category actually has to be expanded to include them. And I've also been very interested in the ways in which norms function in order to police Mm -hmm. these categories and the way in which norms function through anxiety in particular and to some extent paranoia. Yeah, in order to keep the outsider in place, and the kind of distortions that can happen, both for the outsider and for those who are trying to keep the outsider in place, and I, I think, at this moment in time, we certainly see that happening in a larger political context. Yeah, daily.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. And as you were as you were starting to speak, and before you said norms, the word that had popped into my mind was normalize Mm. the, the normalizing these normalizing forces and I think one of the things that's so incredibly powerful about a murder over a girl is the way in which you're able to show and even dramatize this kind of enormously strenuous sometimes almost grotesque effort that's involved in shoring up the idea of a quote-unquote normal boy, right. that, you know, normal boyhood, mm-hmm. normal masculinity. We're able to see what a laborious story that is to tell. It's really, really amazing.
2: And, and one of the things for me that was really stayed with me was that the testimony of the kids, for me, was the most believable testimony that came into the court, mm-hmm. even though legal... People, scholars, I guess, will say that children are not reliable witnesses. I didn't find that to be true at all. And I I, I think we're always underestimating children. But I found them to be remarkable in the ways in which even those boys who were identified as normal looked upon what was happening to Letitia with a degree both, I think, they looked upon it In a way that was doubled. They could see that they were in the thrall of the norm, and yet at the same time they could see that what was happening to her, and in particular her murder, was way out of league with how they felt uh, those norms should be lived. They were horrified. Right, yeah. right, and
3: what I thought—what I thought was remarkable about—I I, first of all, I completely agree with you that their their testimony is really amazing to read in that book. And what I found so striking, especially because you put it so effectively side by side with the adult testimony, yes, yes. is how much more—and I think that this is what's so striking about children and young people in general—how much more able they are to see a full range of possibility Mm -hmm. and how much more open they are in their thinking, they're not as much captive to these really rigid stories that the adults are kind of clinging to with, like, white knuckles. The -hmm. the kids Mm -hmm. are much more able to sort of sense the playfulness and kind of see a wider range of normal. There's a Mm -hmm. comment where one of the quote-unquote normal boys speaking of Larry walking in women's shoes, hmm. says, God, that was great to watch, like he could <laughs> run in those shoes. Like, I think he says, that was sick, Yeah, which, yeah. you know, among kids is a huge compliment. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. that was sick how he could yeah. do that. Yeah. And mm. so I, I loved that. And I think for me, it was really connected to issues that I find so interesting about young people kind of in this transitional state in between being children and being adults, where they are in a lot of ways, so much more able to envision possibility.
2: Do you think that comes into play in trust exercise as well? A character is quite taken with etymology, which that isn't a norm necessarily, but it's a mode of thinking Mm -hmm. that brings us back to roots and origins. And at the same time, this character is trying to move forward in a therapeutic right. relationship and discourse. And millennials now use this gerund called adulting, mm-hmm. right, which yeah. I find really curious, yeah. which says something about the kind of norms that they're experiencing. Usually
1: yeah. followed by, adulting is really hard. Adulting yes. is yes. really yeah. hard. Yes. <laughs> you know,
3: I could not agree more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I could not agree more. By the time we meet this character, she's an adult. But she's very preoccupied with digesting her adolescent experience and with trying to come to terms with what that experience meant to her and what it meant to other people. And she disagrees really strongly with the versions of that experience that others have put forward. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, she disagrees with herself. Right. I think to a degree that um I hope the reader can pick up on, but that she, the character, maybe isn't mm-hmm. isn't fully aware of how conflicted her own view of her story is. Yeah.
0: Billy and I were having a discussion just about this very thing, about her own conflict and then the conflict with others versions of what had happened, like who's writing her who's writing her story and her attempts to write her own story mm. and how fraught that can be and can you actually reference this idea of afterwardness yes. you write about it yes. in your book yes. and we were both struck Billy and I when in our discussion about how much afterwardness is in your book and by afterwardness we're talking about this idea and that comes from psychoanalysis about how one can have um, a past event typically traumatic but it's not solely traumatic Be re-experienced and rewritten in the presence when they have a new understanding, whether it's gained from becoming an adult Mm -hmm. or through insights of others or information they gather. So there's a way that the past experience gets felt anew. And I think there's a line, just one line that I want to read. And and when I read it, I was like, that's afterwardness. Mm -hmm. I could use this Mm -hmm. as a way to Mm -hmm. teach the idea. I think you could use
2: the whole book to teach
0: it. You could use both of your books for that and just teach about trauma, we were saying. But let me see if I can find... Both books are
1: a whole course in trauma.
0: Yeah. Let's see. We almost never know what we know until after we know it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That sentence right there, I mean, there was much more written, but that really stood out in terms of this idea of afterwardness. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. Yeah. I, I mean
3: afterwardness is such a great term. Karen embarks on a relationship with a much older person mm. and believes herself to be freely choosing this experience. But I I guess if I could adopt the term in her afterwardness, she experiences that relationship very differently through mm. the lens of, of realization that that older person was not yeah. who she thought did not feel toward her as she felt toward him did not have her best interests at heart basically exploited Mm -hmm. and discarded her Mm -hmm. and because in her sort of youthful freedom and agency she chose him it's very difficult for her to not blame herself for the outcome Mm -hmm. and so her afterwardness is is one of a lot of inner conflict and self-laceration
2: And, you know, definitionally, one of the aspects of afterwardness, which Freud, the pedant in me, wants to <laughs> note that Freud called it nachtraglichkeit. Um, and then Lacan came along and called it après coup. And then Laplanche came along and, and called it afterwardness. I, I prefer afterwardness myself because it's just more straightforward or it's English. <laughs> <laughs>
3: so, Karen. Again, like all characters that I write and I think like all characters that most fiction writers write, Karen sort of just emerges and takes shape, right? And I I didn't sit down and think like, how can I construct a character who expresses these ideas that that never works, at least not for me. But Karen, to me, now that she's fully formed and I can step away and look back at her, does have this her and her quality where she is – two karens at Mm. least Mm. and it was something that i discovered first in her narrative voice in which she Mm. uses both the first and the third person sarcastically Mm -hmm. i thought and Mm -hmm. i I still think she does that sarcastically Mm -hmm. in part because she dislikes the fact that someone else has been telling the karen story Mm -hmm. and so she takes on that storytelling voice in a kind of a nasty Mm tongue-in-cheek way where she's like oh you've been narrating karen I can do that too. Mm-hmm. Karen's doing this now. Mm. So that was one way in which she was her and her. But another way that evolved as I was writing and that I wasn't, again, in wasn't fully premeditating was the way in which Karen's story is sort of this arrow pointed toward this action that she takes at the end mm-hmm. of her section that – I would have to argue it's pretty obvious in retrospect. Like when she takes that action, Mm. I would be surprised by anyone's surprise. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem that Mm -hmm. surprising. Mm -hmm. And it even seems as if she herself has been signaling. Mm -hmm. So Karen is, on the one hand, I think very obviously signaling certain intentions. But on the other hand, she's, you know, she's narrating her experience and never betrays that this set of motivations is, is operational. Do you know what I mean? She, she's very unreliable. Yeah. I think unreliable to herself.
2: And in that way, she's not unlike Brandon in A Murder Over a Girl, mm-hmm. um, in that Brandon is also very busy indicating, I think enacting. they would call it indicating, right, or broadcasting his anxiety, his depression, his propensity for violence, and the adults around him, many of them, the teachers in particular, I think are too preoccupied and overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. The school was built for, um, I believe, 600 kids. And at the time of the murder, there were 1,200 kids. They were having to bring their own paper and uh, writing implements into school every day. And so it was a systemic failure mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. epic proportions. But he was busy um, letting people know that uh, murder was on his mind. In fact, he had been talking about it for nine months yeah. prior to the murder. yeah. And uh, his father, in fact, went to the school the day before the murder in some effort to draw people into... Being more alarmed than they seem to be. right? So his is not an act of afterwardness per se. His is a kind of unfurling of trauma in real time. Mm-hmm. But both Karen and Brandon are shaped by trauma, and trauma is exquisitely open to afterwardness. It would be, I think, quite interesting to know how Brandon if he can, if he has the capacity to reflect as he is older, how he will account, if he can give account, Mm -hmm. uh, for what happened. Yeah,
3: Hmm. yeah. I was was really thunderstruck by the similarities I felt between real Brandon and fictional Karen when I read about Brandon, which... Happened after I created fictional Karen. In fact, I've been trying to write a craft talk about my own work to deliver at a later date, and um, which is always a hard thing to do. Yeah. But like, how do you make your work? I don't know. <laughs> um, and 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 reading your book actually turned a light on for me mm. because the way in which Brandon and these are these are all going to be imperfect words that I use, but the way in which he seems like. Like a waking sleepwalker or like an automaton. His incredible composure in the moment of his crime that doesn't seem to have cold blooded hatred in it at all. It's more this strange emptiness,
2: mm-hmm.
3: as if he's acting out programming
2: mm-hmm.
3: that he, in a lot of ways, seems to have wanted someone to derail.
2: Mm. Yeah, and I was actually left to have to imagine that because he never he never spoke other than to the psychologist for the defense who proved himself to be a rather unreliable expert, and I say expert with a certain amount of qualification, I think. But I think what you're describing might, in a, a psychoanalytic world, be referred to either as disavowal, which means to see with one eye and not see with the other, or more significantly dissociation, Mm -hmm. which means to be acting out of awareness and in a depersonalized way. Mm -hmm. I don't think that Brandon was acting out of awareness because he did respond to the teacher when she yelled between the first shot and the second Mm -hmm. shot. He could give a a remarkably accurate account, even by the account of the remarkably inaccurate psychologist mm-hmm. who interviewed him of what happened. But I do think that his was a mind that was shaped by dissociation. And frankly, I think the defense would have had a stronger case to argue that he was a human who was marred by violence and abuse and neglect and dissociation. This was a mind that was in many ways full of holes Mm -hmm. and holes that he could fall into Mm -hmm. and yet still operate with awareness and my hunch is that that is what took place during the murder.
3: Yeah. Um, He also seems like he could be a mind driven by stories. Yes, or ideologies. Yeah, Yeah, the ideology
2: of white supremacy. Exactly. I could see that we were in the presence of a kind of ideology and an ideological shift that was happening in the country Mm -hmm. and the way in which this book, I had no idea, uh, I really was not aware at all, that what we were seeing in this small courtroom in Chatsworth, California, was actually happening in a much broader way nationally.
1: So I think what both of you are describing is something I've been thinking about in relation to your work because one of you is approaching storytelling through literature and one of you is approaching storytelling through the mind of psychology and, you know, how minds work. And I was thinking about Grace Paley talking Mm. about in order to have a story, you have to have two stories. Mm. And, right, one is dealing with the external fact, like the murder in the courtroom and who's going to win the case. And the other is the internal motives and the conflicts and guilt or fear or what have you. And I think what you're talking about, Susan, when you're talking about these two things going on at the same time, and what you're talking about, Ken, with dissociation is that same idea. There's these two stories. And it makes your work, both of you, so readable. I couldn't put either
2: book down. I was,
1: like, staying up all night, really.
2: Thank you. Mm. Adding to what you're saying, Brandon grew up in a small beach town that was itself a working-class beach town in California uh, that was rapidly morphing into an upper-middle-class beach town. And so his very community was under siege, as, as he might have felt it, and I think as people in his community mm. felt it. And in the same way, I think that um, through the engagement with white supremacist ideology and with his extremely violent father and a very chaotic home, I think he also likely thought that masculinity was under siege mm-hmm. in the ways in which Larry was becoming Letitia.
0: Mm-hmm. It reminds me of in the community that, and even the jurors, which stunned me, were wearing those Save Brandon bracelets. Right, bracelets, bracelets yeah. And I was thinking how it could have easily said, Save Whiteness, Save Masculinity, mm. You know, save community mm-hmm. as they define it,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and that there was so much rage around this impingement on what they have bound up as the story of what's makes sense, what's normal, and what is community. That really—I mean, what did you make of those bracelets? They were just so—
2: Bewildering. Yeah. yeah. It, well, it was. I think it was an act of normative regulation, right? Mm-hmm. On their wrist, they were saying, "This is the norm, yeah. and we have to save the norm." And you're quite right. I think it was about saving heterosexuality. It was about saving whiteness, and it was a some in some way a, a kind of saving of. Also, a class phenomenon. Uh, Class enters here as well. Something about a a working class ideology and a a sense of grievance Mm -hmm. that we hear from the Oval Office on a a daily basis, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, grievance is, I think, perhaps Trump's greatest. He's incredible at grievance. I don't even know what to. to Rhetorical device. Yes, rhetorical device, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: But I think Letitia also was struggling to belong. Trying to find a community, trying to find a niche, trying to find some way of connecting to people given the fact that her history had been very much obscured. You know, he had the roots in the community. She didn't have roots by virtue of her adoption and – or at least not clear roots – And there was conflict in what she had, given the adoptive family Mm, versus the mm, birth family. So mm, the struggle to belong is a real problem that we all face as we become who we are.
2: mm, mm.
0: In terms of the struggle to belong and how your book eerily foreshadowed Trumpism, which I could only see in afterwardness of reading it Mm, now, mm. that is at the—I mean, it's not easy to distill it down to one thing, but certainly a core component— of how we've ended up where we are is this gap people feel in terms of that they don't belong in the ways in which, it, I like the term used use, normative regulation can be used as a way to fix that or to repair when there are just huge holes that people are experiencing. If there's any way in for me to empathize with those that I strongly feel anger towards or disagree with, it's maybe around that idea of you know, belonging and failure to feel like you're belonging.
2: Although I think Billy is right to refer to the grievance as a rhetorical device and as political strategy because what we see with both of these boys, and I think we see it in a different context, in a middle-class context, which is quite different, in in an upper-middle-class context and trust exercise, but maybe in particular with respect to women and the normative uh, dimensions of misogyny, which I, I think we definitely see in the latter part of the book, and trauma, uh, a particular kind of sexual trauma that women are, I think it's right to say, more susceptible to than are men. I think there, men have different kinds of sexual traumas that are, are perhaps we're only now b- beginning to understand. Mm. But the device uh, that we see or the political device that we see would suggest that in some way these grievances are going to be answered. That mm-hmm. in some way there is going to be better attention to adolescence. There's going to be better attention to the mothers and early child care, however they're, they're phrasing that.
1: What's interesting is that Trump is also trying to take advantage of afterwardness, right? Like mm-hmm. Ken, you wrote in your book, One way trauma snags us, we're we're always retroactively doing the math as we try to add up and explain what we failed to see in time. In a way, we might think of memory as addition. Memories are built retroactively and then rebuilt and rebuilt. And Trump is trying to rebuild our memories to think of our past in a very different way than we might think of it left to our own devices.
2: Yeah, he wants us to think of it as great. Mm -hmm. Quite literally. (laughs) Right, right. right. Mm -hmm.
0: Thanks for listening to part one of our conversation with Dr. Ken Corbett and Susan Choi. Please join us next time for part two when we discuss adolescent sexuality and the ways that adults can fail teens. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnick and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association.
1: Couched is funded by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association and the Psychoanalytic Society of NYU.
0: The advice and information presented on Couched is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your personal, psychological, medical, financial, or legal advisor before taking any action.